Sambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast, bringing you true crime from around the world. Hi Islanders, well, last week we had a musician murdered, this week the tables are turned as a musician and record producer becomes a murderer. But before we get into it, Kate and I flew to Melbourne last weekend, hence no episode, and we had a great time catching up with Tara from World's Dumbest Criminals podcast, which you should check out, and Libby and Steve Ladell, big-time supporters of the island. It was a fun night had by all. Also, please check out a new short series by Spotify called More Than Talk. You can watch it on Spotify, but it's also on YouTube. More Than Talk is a content series to help Aussies better surface, demystify, find and discover podcasts to suit their varied interests. The podcast club-style series will bring together three much-loved Australians from different walks of life, each known for their unique opinions and reverent personalities, to join the host and popular media personality, Melissa Leong, in having unfiltered conversations, discussing their favourite podcasts and how and when they consume them. That was a lot to say. Sorry, everyone, I, ha- I do have the Rona at the moment. Anyway, in episode two, Indigenous comedian, the talented Steph Tisdell, discusses her favourite podcasts and mentions the island in there. So please check that out as well. All right, let's get back into it. Now, references tonight are from Court Records, a lot of them actually, Sunday Telegraph, Rolling Stone magazine, Vanity Fair magazine, the Vancouver Sun, Santa Maria Times, the LA Times and mentalfloss.com. Okay, so we go back to 2003, Alhambra, California, where in the early hours of Monday the 3rd of February, after a night of boozing, musician and record producer Phil Spector will stagger out of the rear entrance of his mansion holding a gun. His chauffeur, Adriano de Souza, who'd been driving Spectre around all night, would hear him say, I think I've killed somebody. Inside the open rear door, de Souza could see the bloodied and lifeless body of 40-year-old Lana Clarkson slumped in a chair. Alright, so a lot of you will probably know who Phil Spectre is, but just in case you don't, let's go over how this little weirdo got to where he was. Born Harvey Philip Spector on December the 26th, 1939 in New York City, he was a scrawny kid with a mother that was a domineering yenta. Now, yenta, that's Yiddish or English word for a woman who's a gossip or a busybody. His father, he put a hose connected to the exhaust pipe of the family car into the front window and killed himself when Spector was eight years old. Although, I do hear Spector say in an interview, that he blew his brains out. So, who knows? To deal with this, Spectre turned to music, and he really immersed himself in his music. In 1953, at 14 years of age, the family moved to LA. At around 17, Spectre wrote the song, To Know Him Is To Love Him, which was inspired by the words on his father's tombstone, To Know Him Was To Love Him. Here's a bit of it. Just to 
After graduating from Fairfax High School in 1958, he recorded this song with his vocal group, The Teddy Bears, and it shot to number one on the US charts and stayed there for three weeks. It would go on to be a worldwide hit for not only The Teddy Bears, but other artists as well. And here's a bit of trivia. Carol Connors, who sang the song, co-wrote the Rocky theme song, Gonna Fly Now, which has it's only got 30 words in it, so I really don't know which word she wrote and what a co-writer wrote either. Who knows? Anyway, this would be only the start of Spectre's career in music. He was very interested in the production side of the music industry, writing songs and producing them for others, and he was pretty good at it. He had four rules in his music career. The music must be emotional and honest, create a sound that no one can copy or cover, make sure you get your money, and there's never a contract without a loophole. Spectre called his music Symphonies for the Kids. In 1963, he married Annette Mara, who was lead female vocalist for the trio, trio he formed called the Spectre Three. Now, when I say lead vocalist, the recordings were sung by Ricky Page, and Annette would lip-sync them for public appearances. Now, they were divorced in 1965, with Spectre already having an affair with lead singer of another band he was producing, the Ronettes. This was Veronica Bennett, or Ronnie as she was known, and he would go on to make her his second wife in 1968. We'll get back to his marriage a bit later, and I don't want to get bogged down too much in Spectre's career. We're just going to be here forever. Now, Spectre pioneered what he called the Wall of Sound, where he would cram 20 or so musicians into a small room, record on a three-track and mix it down to mono, causing the sounds to mix together and create this wall of sound effect. He would record over and over, adding or subtracting an instrument in this tyrannical obsession for the perfect sound. Now, I guess this level of control over the musicians was probably a bit of his quest for perfection and a bit of power and control that he could have over others. Because this was something he lacked in his childhood with his Yenta Mama. He would go on to work with Cher, Leonard Cohen, the Beatles, John, John Lennon, George Harrison, the Ramones, and many, many others. And this control manifested itself in his marriage with Ronnie. He watched the movie Citizen Kane over and over and over again. And he would play Richard Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries at full bore endlessly. Basically, he kept Ronnie locked up in his Beverly Hills mansion. Now here, this this is weird. He had a gold coffin with a glass top in the basement. He threatened Ronnie that if she ever tried to leave him, he would kill her and display her corpse in said coffin. He forbade her from performing, which destroyed her career. He pulled guns on her. He had barbed wire and guard dogs protecting the grounds. He took all her shoes away to stop her from leaving. And on the rare occasion she was allowed to go out, she would have to have a life-size dummy of Phil in her car. They did adopt a son, Dante, and later twins, Louis and Gary. Now, Spectre doing this probably to keep Ronnie from leaving. 
Ronnie, with the help of a mum, broke a window one night and escaped the mansion, barefoot, and this was in 1972. Again, I don't want to go into too much detail about her leaving and the divorce, but these divorce terms were really bad for Ronnie, as she had to agree to his terms, as he'd threatened to have her killed if she tried to get a better settlement. Now, this included giving up all rights and royalties to all her music. She would win a lawsuit later on and get more of her share. And sadly, Ronnie passed away just months ago, on January the 12th, 22. Now... Their sons would later come out and claim that Spectre would blindfold them and make his girlfriend have simulated sex with them. I haven't got the name of the girlfriend. I'm not 100% sure of the name. I have a name of one of his girlfriends, but I don't know if it was her. So they, he'd get his girlfriend to have simulated sex with his sons. Now, they said also that they were held captive in the mansion, much like Ronnie was, and that it was a sick and twisted family. Okay, so now we're seeing what sort of clown this guy is. Controlling, perverted, extremely jealous and paranoid. He also had this thing with guns. Spectre reckons he got this obsession after being beat up in a men's room while playing with the teddy bears one night. Now, he wasn't playing with teddy bears, that was the name of the band. The guys not only beat him up, but they all pissed on him as well. Knowing he couldn't defend himself, he decided to get a gun and this obsession would last throughout his life. In 1974, he was almost killed when he crashed his car in Hollywood and flew through the windscreen. He would have been pronounced dead at the scene, but the cop that was there detected a faint pulse. By the 80s, he'd become reclusive and in 1998, he purchased a property at 1700 Grandview Drive, Alhambra, California. It was called the Pyrenees Castle. Now, you should Google this. It's a French chateau-style mansion right on the top of a hill. Okay, now it's time to get to the night of the 2nd of February, 2003. Spectre's sometime chauffeur, Adriano de Souza, is called by Michelle Blaine, Spectre's secretary, asking if he could drive that night. De Souza arrived at Spectre's house in the early evening and prepared the Mercedes. Spectre, now 63 years old, got into the car carrying a leather briefcase and told de Souza to drive to Studio City, where his friend Romy Davis lived. De Souza picked up Romy and then drove to The Grill. Spectre and Romy went inside for dinner, and Spectre had one daiquiri and at least part of another during dinner. When he ordered the second daiquiri, Romy suggested that it wasn't a good idea because he was acting silly. Spectre ignored her and continued to drink. He appeared, to everyone, to be a little drunk. They finished dinner between 9.30 and 10pm. Romy wanted to get to bed early because she had to work the next day. Kathy Sullivan. She was working at the grill that night as a server. She first met Spectre in 1997 and had socialised with him occasionally for a year or two, always in the company of her friend Susan. Now, Kathy greeted Spectre and Romy when they came to the grill. After finishing her shift, Kathy was eating when another restaurant employee came over and asked if she and her co worker Karen wanted to join Spectre for a drink. Now, Karen declined, but Kathy went over to Spectre's table and then accepted his invitation to go to Trader Vic's. Spectre and DeSouza took Romy home and returned to the grill to pick up Kathy. At Trader Vic's, Spectre and Kathy ordered a dr- and drank a Navy Grog and an Amaretto Sour, respectively. 
Then they returned to the Mercedes. Kathy said she was tired, but Spectre wanted company at Dan Tana's restaurant. Because Dan Tana's was located between Traders Vic's and Kathy's apartment, Spectre had to souse a driver to her car. So Kathy dropped the car off at her Hollywood apartment and got back in the Mercedes. The Souser arrived at Dantana's restaurant about 12.30am. There, Spectre ordered a daiquiri and Kathy ordered another amaretto sour. They ate some food and ordered a second round of drinks. Spectre then suggested going on to the House of Blues. Now, Kathy agreed, although she really wanted to go home. So at this stage, Spectre is starting to get a bit drunk and was insisting, if not demanding, company. To me, he seems like his only friends are those that he buys. He's rich, he's famous and reclusive, but can't stand drinking alone. At the House of Blues, Spectre tried to get into the foundation room. Now, that's a private VIP section of the club. And this is where we meet 40-year-old Lana Jean Clarkson. Now, Lana was born April the 5th, 1962 at Long Beach, California. Lana grew up in Sonoma County, California and went to school at Cloverdale High and then Pacific Union College with ambitions to be in the entertainment industry. A blonde and six foot high in heels, she was a striking beauty and friends described her as loving to make people feel good and you would never forget it if you met her. By age 20, she'd landed a role in the movie Fast Times at Ridgemont High. She also appeared in commercials and TV shows. She was also in the 1983 movie Scarface. In 1985, she got the lead role in what would be a B-grade Barbarian Queen and its sequel, Barbarian Queen 2, The Empress Strikes Back. With these two movies, she gained a cult following and these these two movies have a cult following. She also had small one-episode roles in TV shows such as Three's Company, The New Mike Hammer, Riptide, Knight Rider, The A-Team, than the, the love boat, and that's just the name of few. During the 80s, when HIV and AIDS was new and frightening most people, Lana volunteered giving out food for those that were affected by it. But her career wasn't really getting her to the heights she may have wanted as she approached her 30s. She did work for a Beverly Hills madam, Jody Babydoll Gibson, for a time as a $1,000 an hour cool girl and would be booked in a second for a $10,000 Paris type deal and that was according to a source that spoke to Vanity Fair. In emails to friends around the year 2000, she did reveal that she was happy but disappointed at the state of her career and was looking at a potential career as a stand-up comedian. On February the 1st, 2003, just a day before her death, Lana was at Comic-Con. Having acted in the cult classic Barbarian Queen, Lana enjoyed going to such events to sign autographs and interact with her fans, not leaving until everyone that wanted to see her got the chance. But on the 2nd of February 2003, she was working at the House of Blues nightclub, 8430 Sunset Boulevard. Okay, a lot of this will be straight from court records. Of course, I edit it for flow as normal. Lana Clarkson was a hostess and a security officer at the foundation room at the club. Working security at the foundation room involved taking care of the VIP clientele and checking wristbands to make sure only properly authorised people were allowed in. Now, Spectre was a VIP client of the foundation room and had just arrived with Kathy Sullivan from Dan Tana's restaurant. Now, this is probably around 1am or so. 
Now, Lana stopped Spectre and Kathy from entering the foundation room because they weren't wearing the appropriate wristbands. Now, Spectre said, Do you know who I am? Now, Sophia Holguin, one of the cocktail waitresses there, told Lana that the Mansfield Spectre, a music producer and a multimillionaire. So Lana went, okay. She seated Spectre and Kathy on a sofa and told them if they were going to order drinks, they had to hurry because it was late. Now, Sophia took their orders with Spectre getting a Bacardi 151, which is pretty strong. I think it's double proof. And Kathy ordered a water. Now, this infuriated Spectre with him telling her, just order a fucking drink. Then Spectre realised Kathy wasn't going to drink with him and time was running out sort of to hit up other women. So he told her, okay, so you want to go home? Fine, I'll have my driver take you home. Then he shouted, get Lana. He told Lana that he was sending Kathy home and so Lana escorted her to the car. Spectre then tried to get Sophia, the cocktail waiter, to drink with him and when she said she wasn't allowed, he asked her to go home with him. Now, she declined. Lana had come back inside and was sort of hanging around Spectre, fluffing up pillows on the couch. Spectre told her to stop acting like fucking Charlie Chaplin and he told her just to calm down and have a drink with him. Now, Lana got permission to sit with him, but not to drink. Then after the last drink, Spectre sorted out his tab. Lana was about to leave and Spectre asked if she needed a lift. Now she agreed, but only to her car. They left the House of Blues around 2.20am. When they got to Spectre's car, he asked if she would go to the castle with him, which is what he called his mansion thing. Now Lana told him she was tired and she wasn't supposed to go with clients. He insisted, so they drove to Lana's car, she parked in a nearby street and then she got into Spectre's car. Lana spoke to DeSouza, the chauffeur, that she was only going for a drink, which got Spectre upset again, and he screamed, Don't talk to the driver! Don't talk to the driver! I think this was Lana also being a little bit wary of Spectre at this point, as he was really drunk and he was hitting up whoever would go back home with him. She wanted to make it clear that she wasn't staying long and maybe DeSouza would look out for her. They'd actually worked together previously. De Sousa got back to the house at around 3am with Spectre and Lana going inside while he parked around the back. De Sousa was to wait until Lana was ready to be driven home. Now, again, I'm going to read some of this from the court records. Around 5am, De Sousa was startled by a sharp noise which sounded like a pow or a bang. He got out of the Mercedes to investigate. For two or three minutes, he looked around, but he couldn't find anything, so he got back in the car shut the door. A few seconds later, Spectre opened the back door. He was wearing the same clothes he'd been wearing earlier that night. Black pants, a black shirt and a white or cream coloured jacket. De Sousa got out of the Mercedes because he thought it was time to give Lana a ride. Spectre stepped out onto the back porch and De Sousa could see he was holding a revolver in his right hand. Spectre said, I think I've killed somebody. De Sousa thought he saw a little bit of blood on Spectre's right index finger. Behind Spectre, De Sousa could see a woman's legs through the open back door. When he stepped one side to get a better view, he could see Lana's entire body. She was sitting slumped in a chair, sort of half in the chair and half on the floor, with her legs extended out in front of her. There was blood on her face. De Sousa asked Spectre what happened. Spectre shrugged his shoulder, but he didn't say anything. He had a blank look on his face. 
Souser got scared when he realised Lana might be dead and he started running away from the house. He tried to use his cell phone, but he was so disoriented that he couldn't manage it at first. Then he ran back to the Mercedes, got in it and drove to the main entrance gate. When he calmed down enough to use his cell phone, DeSousa called Michelle Blaine, Spectre's secretary, because her number had been programmed into his cell phone. He called Blaine because he didn't know Spectre's street address, which he wanted so he could give it to police. When Blaine didn't pick up, DeSousa left her the following message. Michelle, Michelle, it's Adriano. Michelle, Michelle, I have, you have to come to Mr. Phillips' house. I think he killed some uh, lady. Please call me back. I'm going to call the police right now. DeSousa found Spectre's address posted on a sign outside the front gate and he called 911. The call was recorded at 5.02am. DeSousa told the CHP dispatcher, I think my boss killed somebody. Asked why he believed there'd been a, been a killing, DeSousa said, because he have a lady on, on the floor and he have a gun in, in his hand. After the dispatcher transferred the call to Alambra Police Department, the following exchange occurred. Now, Alambra said, Okay, so have you seen your boss? DeSouza replied, Yes, he had a gun in his hand. At 9.30am, DeSouza is interviewed by the Alambra Police Department and he basically repeated what I just told you. When more detectives turned up at the house, they saw Spectre in the window of a second floor room. He came downstairs and exited out the back door. The cops told him to put his hands up. Instead of complying, Spectre turned around and walked back in the house saying, Hey guys, you got to come see this. The officers followed Spectre into the house and detained him. The officers found Lana's body slumped in a chair in a foyer near the back door. Her legs were extended straight out in front of her and her left arm hung down by her side. Her right hand was draped over her right arm of the chair resting on a purse. The purse straps were wrapped around her shoulder and somewhat twisted and then wrapped around the right hand arm of the chair twisted in an unnatural fashion. There was blood on her face and blood on her chest. Underneath Lana's left calf was a .38 calibre six-shot Colt Cobra revolver. The gun was loaded with five live rounds and there was a spent round under the hammer. The gun was bloody. There was blood on both sides of the wooden grips, on the trigger guard, on the frame directly in front of the wooden grips and on the metal strap securing the grips. A part of Lana's artificial tooth had lodged in the front sight of the gun. More pieces of artificial tooth were found on the floor across the foyer from Lana's body. There was blood on the doorknob and on the latch bolt assembly of the back door. There was a formal living room off the foyer. Now this room was very dark with the only light coming from some candles on top of the fireplace. On a coffee table there was an almost empty bottle of tequila and a brandy snifter containing alcohol. Background music was playing. There was a small bathroom nearby and in the bathroom there was a matching brandy snifter containing a small amount of alcohol. A pair of false eyelashes were sitting on the top of the toilet tank. On the floor of the bathroom, there was a cotton diaper covered with blood on both sides. This diaper had also been soaked with water. On the second floor of the house was the master bedroom. Inside the bedroom closet was a white jacket stained with blood. This jacket was lying crumpled on the closet floor. Sean Hecker, an officer with the Alhambra Police Department, responded to the crime scene and was asked to escort Spectre, who'd already been taken into custody, to the police station. 
Hecker did so and also obtained gunshot residue samples from Spectre's hands. Jame Lintermoot, a criminalist with the Los Angeles County's coroner's office, was part of the coroner's response team that analysed the crime scene. Lintermoot collected blood swabs from Launa's hands and wrists. She took one swab from the backside of the right wrist, where she saw red mist-like drops consistent with blood. She collected two sets of swabs from Lana's left hand, now one from the backside of the wrist of the left hand, and the other was from the inside of the wrist. The backside of the wrist consisted of fine mist-like spots. The other area appeared to be a larger area and appeared to be more of a smear like a contact or transfer bloodstain. Regarding Lana's purse, Lintermoot testified it was a leopard print purse with a long black strap and the black strap was going over her right arm. The purse was resting on the floor. The interesting thing was that the purse was rotated almost 180 degrees. The back of the purse strap appeared to have caught the edge of the seat or the arm of the chair and got flipped around when it landed. Deputy Coroner Louis Penner conducted the autopsy. He concluded Lana died from a single gunshot wound to the head and neck. The bullet entered through her mouth, nicked the upper side of her tongue, travelled to the back of her throat, hit her spinal cord and lodged in the base of her skull. The bullet had completely transected the spinal cord, tearing it from the brain stem and cutting it in half. This meant Lana would have immediately lost all bodily function from the moment she was shot. A forensic neuropathologist confirmed the bullet had separated Lana's spinal cord from her brain stem. The trajectory of the bullet was from front to back and slightly upward. The recoil from the gun fractured and shattered two of Lana's front upper teeth. On the left side of Lana's tongue, there was a bruise consistent with blunt force trauma that could have been caused by the gun's barrel, but not by the bullet. Penner found that other injuries on Lana suggested of resistance or a struggle. There was a bruise on the back of Lana's left hand, which had been caused by blunt force trauma that had been inflicted prior to death. There were bruises on the back of Lana's right wrist, on her right forearm, also caused by blunt force trauma. All these bruises had been inflicted during the same event and they were consistent with a struggle, with Lana having been grabbed or hit. Penner concluded that Lana Clarkson's death was a homicide. A Dr. Lynn Herald, a forensic scientist who works at the crime lab at the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, analysed the forensic evidence. Now, Herald came to the following ultimate conclusions. Lana had been sitting slumped in the chair when she was shot. The barrel of the gun was in her mouth and it was being held upright in a normal operating manner. Assuming Spectre was wearing his jacket when the gun went off, he'd been standing within two or three feet of Lana when she was shot. She couldn't have fired the fatal shot. Spectre would insist that Lana had been depressed and had shot herself. But a suicide just didn't stack up. Lana had work coming up for an infomercial. She just picked up 200 copies of her headshot for use for applying for modelling jobs. She had plans to attend a party with friends and she'd brought with her mum a stack of flat shoes to use at work. She also had all of her tax statements ready to lodge with her accountant. And not that this proved she didn't kill herself, but it showed she had made many plans for her future. Plus, who goes to someone's house that they've never met before she didn't even know he was a millionaire when she he walked into the club goes there finds a gun and then commits suicide it just doesn't add up 
and it would be this forensic evidence that would get Spectre in the end. Now, after he was charged with murder and awaited trial, on bail of course, more and more stories would come out about him and his reckless use of guns, and I'll get to that in a bit. Spectre was originally tried in 2007. That trial ended in a hung jury. Now, he paid for the best forensic scientists he could buy off. They tried to say that Lana put Spectre's gun to her head and pulled the trigger, using their so-called expert testimony to try and clear him of murder. But a second trial convicted him, and he would be sentenced to 19 years to life on April the 13th, 2009, with all subsequent appeals dismissed. Spectre would have been eligible for parole in 2024, but died from complications of COVID on January the 16th, 2021, at the age of 81. Okay, so we haven't finished yet with this pathetic little twerp. During his trial, there was testimony from some of the other women Spectre pulled guns on. I'll read out again from court documents. Okay, the first one, Dorothy Melvin. While working as a personal manager for the comedian Joan Rivers, Dorothy Melvin occasionally dated Spectre between 1989 and mid-93. Melvin described Spectre as brilliant beyond belief and a very charming, lovable man when he wants to be. He's a wonderful person to be around and when he's drinking and he gets to a certain point, then he totally loses it and becomes this demon. In July 93, Dorothy visited Spectre at his home in Pasadena. During the evening, Spectre drank a lot of vodka and was becoming very charming. Then he disappeared for a while and Dorothy fell asleep on the couch. She awoke before daybreak and discovered Spectre pointing a .38 snub-nosed revolver at her brand new car. Dorothy screamed at Spectre, What the fuck do you think you're doing? And Spectre told her to go back into the house. When Dorothy kept screaming at him, Spectre hit her in the head with the gun and said, I told you to get the fuck into the house. Dorothy returned to the house. Spectre followed her and started going through her purse. He accused her of looking for things to steal and sell. He told her to take off her clothes and go up to the third floor where Dorothy assumed his bedroom was. All the while, Spectre was waving the gun around, sometimes pointing it at her. When she refused to take her clothes off, Spectre hit her in the head with the gun again. She was terrified. She managed to retrieve her car keys, run out of the house, get into a car and start driving, but the entrance gate was closed. As she sat in the car at the gate, she saw Spectre running down the driveway with a pump-action shotgun. Spectre worked the pump and screamed, I told you to get the fuck out of here. When Dorothy said the gate wouldn't open, Spectre suddenly became calm again and asked quizzically, Gate won't open? Then he said, Well, I'm going back in and open it. And he ran back to the house and opened the gate. Once she got through the gate, she called 911 and made a report to the police. I mean, what the fucking fuck? This person is free to own guns after he does this. Well, let's go on. There's Stephanie Jennings. In 1994, Stephanie Jennings, a photographer with a professional interest in the music business, began a long-distance dating relationship with Spectre. Stephanie lived in Philadelphia and had an agency in New York, while Spectre's primary residence was in Pasadena. In January 95, Stephanie was Spectre's guest at a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee award dinner at a Waldorf Astoria after party. 
At the after party, Spectre was drinking heavily, being unpleasant and making obnoxious remarks. The more Spectre drank, the louder and more boisterous he became. Stephanie left the party between 2 and 3am and took a taxi back to the Carlisle Hotel. She went to her room and fell asleep. She was awakened when one of Spectre's bodyguards knocked on her door and said Spectre wanted her to join him in his room. Stephanie said she would see him tomorrow. After Stephanie went back to sleep, Spectre himself knocked on her door and said he wanted her to join him in his suite. When Stephanie declined, Spectre got angry, yelled at her and demanded that she come. He reminded her that he was paying for her hotel room. He said if she didn't come to his suite, she'd have to leave and pay for her own hotel. Now Stephanie, she said she just she would do just that. Inspector entered her room and they argued while she packed. Scared by Spectre's anger, Stephanie was upset and crying. When she started packing her things in the bathroom, the argument became more heated. Spectre pushed or slapped her, causing her to fall backwards into the toilet. She got up and pushed Spectre, who fell into the bathtub, knocking down the shower curtain. Spectre jumped up and left the room. As Stephanie finished packing, Spectre returned. He pulled a chair in front of the door and sat down, blocking her exit. He had a gun in his hand. He was waving the gun around, sometimes pointing it at her. Stephanie was even more scared than before. She couldn't leave the hotel room because Spectre was holding her at gunpoint. She sat in the bed crying and asked Spectre to let her leave. Spectre wouldn't let her leave with her bags, but since they contained her photographic equipment, Stephanie wouldn't leave without them. She picked up the phone and dialed 911. Now Spectre thought she was calling her mother and said, You can call your mum all you want. There's nothing she can help you with now. The 911 operator managed to take the report with Stephanie only having to answer yes or no. Very clever. Officers were dispatched and they came to the room with the hotel manager. Spectre had left Stephanie's room just before they arrived. Now this is nine years before Lana died and both these incidents were reported to police. But wait, there is more. Devra Rubitaille. In the 1970s, Devra, a British pianist, worked for Spectre as the administrative director of his record label, Warner Spectre Records. Devra idolised Spectre and believed he was a genius. A year after she started working for him, they began a romantic relationship which for her was an extramarital affair. During this time, Devra frequently organised parties for Spectre at his Beverly Hills home. She attended these parties as an employee, not as a guest. At one of these parties, probably in 1975, the guests had all gone and Devra was standing out in the foyer, very tired and wanting to leave. The door was locked, so she asked Spectre to let her out. Now, Spectre left the foyer for a few minutes. Devra was standing there with a person jacket, ready to leave when she felt the barrel of a gun touch her temple. She turned and saw Spectre holding a shotgun. He'd been drinking that night and he was very drunk. Spectre said, If you try to leave, I'm going to blow your fucking head off. When Devra said she had to leave, Spectre swore and shouted at her saying things like, I'm going to blow your head off. I'll blow your brains out. You can't leave. I'm not unlocking the door. He was still holding the gun to her head and Devra stood her ground saying, Just stop it. This is ridiculous. I just want to go home. Suddenly Spectre's demeanour changed. I remember him just sort of, I can't describe it in any other way. He just sort of relaxed and the moment passed and he went and got the keys and unlocked the door and let me go. 
There was a little moment of suspension and then he became Phil again. I didn't recognise the other maniac. As a result of this incident, of course, their romantic relationship ended. But then a year later, Deborah ended their business relationship as well. She returned to England and had a musical career for five or six years. In 86, she moved back to the United States, re-established contact with Spectre and accepted a part-time job with him in LA. The same year, Deborah went to a party at Spectre's house. By the time all the guests had gone, it was very late and possibly dawn. Deborah was tired and wanted to leave, but the door was locked. She found Spectre and asked him to let her out. He was drunk again, and Deborah stood near the front door in the foyer with her purse waiting to leave. Suddenly, Spectre pointed a shotgun in her face. He was swearing and making threats. I'll blow your head off. I'll shoot you. I'll kill you. I'll blow your brains out. I could shoot you right now. He was angry, sinister, shouting and bulging veins. There was a look in his eye that wasn't the look that is him. Now, Deborah told him to put the gun down and let her leave. At one point, Spectre went away, leaving Deborah in the foyer, still unable to leave. Spectre returned and the situation started to unwind and he started to unwind and the tension broke again like it had the first time and he unlocked the door. Again, there'd been a sudden change in Spectre's mood. Now, Deborah left and quit a job with Spectre. She testified that she, that he had been drunk during both the 1975 and the 1986 incidents. Jesus, I don't think I'd be going back a second time to his, this guy's place. I certainly w- wouldn't be the last one to leave. Now, we still have two more. Diane Ogden. Diane Ogden worked at the, in the entertainment industry in 1982 after having been introduced to Spectre's publishers. She accepted a dinner invitation from Spectre. At the restaurant, Spectre drank alcohol. Afterwards, they went to Turi's Beverly Hills house. After seeing the house and talking with Spectre, Diane said she needed to go home because she had to work the next day. This is what they all seem to be saying. They've got to go home. Spectre didn't want her to leave. He disappeared and Diane got ready to go, putting a purse over her shoulder. Then she heard a buzzer go off. Spectre had locked the door using a remote control. Diane pleaded with him to let her leave. She begged him some more and he finally unlocked the door and let her leave. From 1982 until 1988, Diane and Spectre kept in touch. When Diane was between jobs in 88, she accepted Spectre's offer to be his paid assistant. In March 1989, she went to his house in Pasadena where he was entertaining some people. Spectre drank alcohol during the evening and about midnight as people were leaving, Diane said she was going home. Now Spectre again didn't want her to leave. He went away and she put a purse on her arm in preparation for leaving. Spectre then appeared with a rifle and screamed, You're not fucking leaving. Diane said he seemed to have become demonic. He was talking and screaming, not being him. He was just like taken over by something. I don't know what, but he wasn't Philip. Diane sat down. Then Spectre pointed a pistol at her, touching her face with it and screaming that he was going to blow her brains out. He ordered her to go upstairs to his bedroom where at gunpoint he made her partially disrobe. He then tried unsuccessfully to have intercourse with her. Diane testified she'd never had a sexual relationship with Spectre. A few months later, Diane was at Spectre's house with a couple of other people. Why would you go back? After the others left, Diane got ready to leave. Once again, Spectre disappeared. Then from behind her, he screamed, You're not going anywhere. I can't stand the sound of your voice. He said, I have an Uzi here. I'm going to kill you. He was holding some kind of gun. 
Diane said, Philip, stop it. I'm just going to go home and don't do this to me again. Please, you're drinking too much. She fled to her car and got in. Spectre ran up and banged the Uzi on a window while yelling at her. Diane ducked down as she drove away fast because she thought he was going to shoot her in a car. Now, you've got to think, that was just four years before Lana was murdered. Then there's Melissa Grosvenor. In 91, Melissa Grosvenor, while working as a waiter in New York, developed a romantic but platonic dating relationship with Spectre. In late 92 or early 93, she accepted an invitation to visit him in California using an airline ticket he bought for her. They went out to dinner at the Beverly Hills Hotel. Spectre had alcohol with his meal. At 11pm, they went to Spectre's house in Pasadena. Melissa was tired and had jet lag. Spectre had another drink. By this time, he was a little drunk. Between 1 and 2am, Melissa was getting tired and wanted to leave. As soon as I told him that I wanted to go, he turned and looked at me, pointed his finger and said, What? And his whole demeanour changed. And he said, You just wait. Wait right there. Spectre walked off. Melissa sat down in a chair with a purse next to her. Spectre returned a few minutes later with a handgun. He walked up to her, pointed the gun a couple of inches from her face and said, If you try to leave, I'm going to kill you. He was irate. He put the gun into a shoulder holster he was wearing. Melissa believed Spectre would shoot her if she tried to leave, so she stayed in the chair. She didn't say anything. She just cried. Eventually, she fell asleep. She awoke the next morning when Spectre tapped her on the foot. He wasn't wearing the holster and he no longer had the gun. He appeared to be back to normal. Now, these aren't the only incidents where Spectre pulled guns on people. He also shot off a pistol next to John Lennon in a recording studio. He held a gun to Leonard Cohen's neck. He pulled a gun on Deborah Harry and he also did it to D.D. Ramone from the Ramones. Yet he had over a dozen guns when he murdered Lana. Now that seems to be his M.O. After getting drunk, he would fool around putting guns at people. If there was a woman that was wanting to go home in the early hours, he would pull a gun on them and try to force them to stay. The problem is... He tried it once too many times and the gun went off. Now this sort of behaviour should never have been tolerated but scum like Spectre, Ghislaine Maxwell, Epstein and the likes of Harvey Weinstein that get away with abhorrent behaviour because of their money and the power that they wield. It makes me... It makes me incredibly mad that Lana was murdered by this little turd because of his pathetic behaviour wasn't stopped over a period of decades. If he'd pulled a gun on me, then first chance I would have got, I would have smashed his face into the concrete and yelled, never point a gun at anyone ever again. And I'm sorry to sound so violent, but someone should have done that. Police reports obviously didn't work. You think with that sort of money, you could pay someone to stay with him. There's plenty out there. But maybe his creepy haircuts kept them all away. What a freak. Well, that's about all for this week. I think I really need to end it there before I destroy my throat as I do have the coof at the moment and I'm just getting more and more raged the more I think about this little turd. I just need to stop now. Okay, I'd like to thank my Patreons past and present for keeping the islands light on. Thanks so much, Felicity Corny, this week. 
Special thanks to all my patrons as well. If you'd like to throw a dollar my way, please check out patreon.com forward slash truecrimeisland. Or if you just want to shout me a beer, you can donate to paypal.me forward slash truecrimeisland. A free beer is always nice after dumps the diving into these cases. But can I just ask if you take time to share the podcast on social media? The Island is one of the very few independent true crime podcasts out there and is commercial free. Best of all, it's free of charge to help The Island out that way. Go to my website, truecrimeisland.com, where you can do whatever you want. You can stream the episodes. You don't even need an iTunes or anything. And links to everything there, social media, merch, the whole well. And if you if you want to get hold of me, you can email me as well. It's always the best way to get in touch. Well, that's about it. My throat's about gone. I've been James Gambo. You don't know how many times I've had to cut and paste and start again tonight. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Boom, Be my